idea I want you to grab onto this entire Advent, that you are called out. We're going to be focusing on texts that deal with the word church. So as you find your way to page 992 of your pew Bible, we're going to go briefly through verse by verse, 1 Timothy three fourteen through chapter 4. Let me just talk about that word church. That's why we're going here. This this text is going to define the church. But to start with, I have to define the word. Because the word church is a weird word. It doesn't have any real connection to other words. You don't know its root. You don't know where it came from. It doesn't have other English words that are like it. And the reason for that is somewhat because it comes from a German word that didn't come over in any other way into our language. English, you may not know, but it's a smashing together of Norse and Latin slash French and German over the course of several hundred years on that island, England, that kept being conquered by these different people. So all these languages smashes together and they they kind of form English, right? English. And so this word Kirke is a German word that we hear as church. You can hear it, the church kirke. Kirke is the word that then Luther uses when he translates the Bible for the first time in over a thousand years into the, the common language, which for him at the time was German. But the word he's going after is a Greek word in the New Testament. It's the word ekklesia, ekklesia. And if you have a chance to write it down, it might help you remember it. E-C-C-L-E-S-I-A. E-C-C-L-E-S-I-A. If you could just imagine that in your head at least and draw a line between the two C's. E-C-C-L-E-S-I-A. And that line, there are two words there in the Greek that have been shoved together. And the first one is is ek, E-C, which comes into English. It's right there. Exit. Right? And, and exit actually is very much what the word ek means. It means out, right? to go out, to come out. And so the word church in Greek for, is to out something. Well, what, what's the rest of it though? The klesia. And it's not quite right. It doesn't come quite into English this way. But if you look at the word, the C-L, C-L-E-S-I-A, the C-L, call, it's not where it comes from, but it'll help you remember it. That's what it means is to call, klesia, to call. So the word ecclesia means called out. And it's the general word for an assembly or a gathering. Long before Jesus uses it to describe what his people, what his kingdom will be, it just means to, to get together. And you might imagine this time of year, you may be planning a party or two, and you're going to want some people to come to your house. And the way you're going to get them to get together, to gather, is you're going to call them out. And the phone call, invitation, doesn't matter. You're going to reach out to them. You're going to say, you come out from where you live to where I live, and we'll have a gathering, and then you're going to go home afterwards, yeah? Uh, But still, you're going to be called out. That word, then, is what Jesus uses to describe his kingdom. His kingdom that is not of this world is a kingdom of people who are called out of this world. We remain in this world, but we're not of it. 
And again, all our texts throughout Advent are going to look at different aspects or different descriptions of this called out reality. Or if you want to take the fancy word for it, ecclesiology, the study of the church. All right, we're just going to go verse by verse through in about 15 minutes here uh, for the text that we have. Where Paul says in verse 14 to young pastor Timothy, who he's left uh, in Ephesus and on Crete uh, to set things in order. He says, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So there, the word church belonging to, again, the called out of the living God is referenced as two other things. It's called the household of God, not just a kingdom, but a family. And by family, I don't mean some kind of cheesy, uh, you know, Christmas commercial where you're making long distance phone calls and everybody's crying. But by family, I mean those who you're so committed to that even your disagreements can't stop you from getting together for a turkey. That's family. Family is blood. Blood is thick. But you've been called out into God's blood, God's family. Of course, you eat a feast every week of that blood to make you one with his body. So there's one definition of the church. On the other side of the word church there, you have another definition. He calls it the pillar and the, uh, and the buttress of the truth. So this calling out is a matter of knowledge. It's a matter of knowledge. It's about knowing something. What do you know? He is risen. Hallelujah. What do you know? This world is passing away. Another world is to come. What do you know? You're a sinner, a poor and miserable one in need of salvation. What do you know? Jesus has died for you and thus become your savior. What do you know? That the Ten Commandments are true. They define how we ought to behave in this family, in this household of God. He's writing again to tell Timothy how to tell the church that's gathered where he is to treat each other. And the rest of the book deals with this. There's all sorts of descriptions about what man and woman should be, about how we should handle the teaching office in the church, about how to deal with poverty and those among us who have needs. There's all sorts of stuff like that in 1 Timothy. But interestingly, right after this emphasis on behavior and being a pillar and buttress of the truth, he then says, great indeed, verse 16, is the mystery of godliness. He says that to be pious, to be believing is a mystery, and it's great, and then he tells you it's Jesus. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. That's Christmas, right? That's the incarnation. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. I believe that's his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is seen by angels. The angels testify to his resurrection as well as his birth. Jesus is proclaimed among the nations. That's the day of Pentecost, yes? When those from all nations heard the gospel preached in their own native tongue. Jesus is believed on in the world. That includes you and me then now. Right? Those who have heard the message and believe. Jesus is taken up into glory. That's his ascension. So what you have there, this mystery of piety, this mystery of godliness that is Jesus, is also given as a very early Christian creed. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, they haven't been developed by the time Paul writes this, but you can kind of see where they got it from a little bit. Yeah. So godliness is going to be an issue coming up in the rest of the text, but notice the emphasis Godliness is first Jesus. Godliness is first grace. 
a free gift, right? not something you do, although this gift isn't going to leave you unchanged either. Verse four, chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. The warning here, there's going to be falsehood, there's going to be liars, but also that some of the lies will be told by those who say we're Christians. And even though they're Christians, they're going to teach things that the devil wants you to believe. And you've been warned here ahead of time. You've been warned about this and that this will happen, verse 2, through the insincerity of liars who conscience, whose, consciences, whose consciences are seared like a good steak. You keep all the juices in, nothing can get out. But that's not good with your conscience. You don't want a seared conscience. You don't want to be a person who, when you're accused of wrongdoing, says, never. No way I'm right no matter what. But that's these false Christians that we're to be warned to watch out for, lest they lead us astray, their consciences aren't pricked by their sin. They're not bothered by the evil of this world. And then they, again, as a result, listen to the teachings of demons. Now, verse 3 actually says what two of these teachings of demons are. One is the forbidding of marriage, which at various times in the history of the church has happened. And I'd be a bad Lutheran if I didn't point out that the Roman Catholic Church still does this today. Not all Romans are going to hell, but it's an evil teaching that priests can't get married. Notice also the requirement of abstinence from foods, which the Roman Catholic Church also teaches about Fridays, where you can't eat meat, you've got to eat fish, and yada, yada, yada. The, The idea here, though, is the destruction of the created order. Marriage is created good, and the demons hate that. They want to destroy it. We can see that in a lot more places right now than the Roman Catholic Church. And the other idea here is that you're going to save yourself by what you eat. This isn't about a diet fad. This isn't about a low carb or anything like that. This is about somebody saying to you that the food that you eat in your home is a matter of spiritual cleanness. And you'll be more righteous if you do certain things than others. That actually is what the vegan movement is about. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church teaches this as well. It teaches that if you eat meat, you're a sinner. So that's the idea here. These are teachings of demons, according to Paul. Uh, Paul says, foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Food might not be good for you at a certain point, but if you're starving and you say thank you, Jesus, then it's good for you. Uh, You need to eat it. You take what's in front of you. Nothing wrong with not eating poison if you can help it, but... Ultimately, trying to live forever is a fool's errand. And so the idea for us Christians is that we are, we are free. We are free. And so we're able to take what God gives us and say thank you to him and then share it with those who are around us. Verse 4, everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Again, you are holy. You are called out. The word of God has entered you and made you the temple of his Holy Spirit so that your prayers ascend through Jesus' wounds to the very right hand of the Father. So that even if you were to go and and accidentally ingest some food poisoning, you're still holy. It doesn't take it away. Again, I'm not trying to give you carte blanche, go eat deep fried ice cream every meal and it'll be fine with you. That's not what I'm saying, and that's what he's saying. That's a a silly thing to think, really, although 
In today's age, with the way that foods are religions for many people, diets are religions for many people, we got to kind of deal with that a little bit. Uh, but the idea here is that you're free. Stop worrying so much about what goes in in terms of how it impacts your relationship with God. Worry more about what comes out. What do you say? How do you speak? How do you see? Those things matter much more. Verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, that is, you know, pastors preach this. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine which you have followed. Now, the word doctrine is a good word. It means teaching that doesn't change. I know, I know you, you can think back in 2008, 1994. 1982. Some of you go further back. That's about as far back as I can go, but you can probably go back to 1973 or 1964. How much has changed? How much do people think has changed? Doctrine is the stuff that never changes. Put these things before yourselves. Yeah? have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. The stories from far away you can't prove. Rather, train yourself for, there's that word again, godliness. Remember, the mystery of godliness is Jesus. The word is agni in the Greek, and it means religiousness. Be religious. You ever hear, see someone say, oh, you know, I love Jesus, I just hate religion? You ever see that? A person's stupid. Uh, Jesus loves religion, and he wants you to be religious. He doesn't want you to be a legalist. He doesn't want you to be a moralist. He wants you to wag your finger at everybody. He wants to wag your finger at yourself. To hear what he has to say and take it to heart. To hear the direction he says to go and to walk in it. Train yourself for godliness. I mean, hear that as the exhortation that it is. Work on your Christianity. Verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, that is athletics, lifting weights, you could even put your diet right there. Bodily training is of some value. Godliness is in the value of every way. For it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And with that statement comes the next one. This saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance. What's trustworthy? What's worthy of full acceptance? That godliness that true religion is not only good for the next life, it's good for this life. So train yourself in it, because it will benefit you in this life. Now, of course, there are false teachers out there who say that that benefit means more money in your bank account, longer life with better health. No, Paul didn't say any of that. He just said that it's of much value to you to know the truth that sets you free to walk with your head upright under the grace of God, to understand that your king is for you and is going to work all things for your good, to train your mind and your heart to remember that day by day while the world shouts lies from demons at you is going to benefit you much in every way. Verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive. Paul's saying he works so that you will hear and believe that. That's what he's after. He's after your conscience that it would not be seared by the lies of the demons, but pierced with the wounds of Jesus so that you would hunger all the more for the knowledge of his righteousness for you and then also from you. To this end, we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God. You have a God. 
He's a true God. No one else has this, Christians. No one else does. They can say they believe in God, but they believe in idols and they don't have the true God. You have a true God. He hears your prayers. Have you asked him for what you really want? Or are you busy just asking for the things you think you want? Have you asked him for what you really need? Or are you busy just asking for your own fleshly passions? Again, you have a true God who hears your words. Use them. Train yourself to use them wisely. He is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Uh, That verse probably has something to do with the universal atonement. He's the savior of all people, meaning Jesus died for everybody. Not everybody believes that. And so he's especially the savior of of we who believe. We, We benefit from that death and resurrection. Verse 11. This is the one I have to take to heart. Command and teach these things. That's what I'm doing. (laughs) I'm commanding and teaching these things. Here they are for you now. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Uh, I used to kind of think that maybe had something to do with me. I I look younger than I am. I feel young. But really the point here is not that Timothy was young or that some pastors are young. The point here is the pastor is to be an example. The pastor is to be an example. That's his goal. Now, we're all going to fail at it. Every pastor's got his weaknesses. I got plenty of them. But my goal is to be an example in speech, right? to speak words that are the words of God, in conduct, to walk like I believe it, in love. Right? The greatest of these is love. In faith, that is to have trust myself. It's, it's hard to preach grace to you if I don't believe in grace for me. In purity, this would have to do with the conscience again, right? Uh, to be an example of one who walks under grace uh, without fear. Verse 13, more instructions for the pastor. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Hello, here we are. It's exactly what this is. We're going to read it out loud. We're going to say what it says. To exhortation, that's me saying, hey, you, train yourself for godliness. Take this Scripture and apply it to yourself. That's exhortation. To teaching. That's when I try to explain what it means grammatically or maybe how it's connected to this history thing or that other. But all of it then is what we Lutherans call preaching, right? Uh, to open the Bible and declare what it means and all of its application to you. Paul says, do that. Verse 14, interesting verse. Do not neglect, do not neglect what you have. Excuse me. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This can mean one of two things. It could just be a reference to ordination, that when a pastor is ordained and sent by the church to preach, that that is a gift to him for the sake of the church. It could mean that. Or it could mean that Timothy in the early church, when there were many more charismatic gifts like healing and prophecy and tongues and all this kind of stuff, uh, that, that Timothy had a special gift in that way, and Paul's encouraging him to use it. You, you pick what you want out of those two options there. Both of them are really fine. But then the whole picture, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Underline that one in your Bible. You know, I know it's law, but what I want you to do is practice believing the gospel. Practice knowing God is for you. Practice calling on his name because you know he hears you. Immerse yourself in the knowledge that Jesus Christ is your king so that all may see your progress. What's that progress going to be? Peace of conscience. Peace of conscience. A touch less anxiety than your neighbor. You're still going to have anxiety, but it won't be like your neighbor who's terrified of everything. 
Yeah. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Right? Judge according to the scriptures and all things. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. It really is for the pastor, but it also is for you. Persist in studying the scriptures, for by so doing yourself will be saved. You already are saved, but the salvation is that word coming to you again and again to hold you, to sustain you. And then God be praised the day it starts coming out of your mouth. Guess what? It benefits all those around you. All the more does it build up and lift up those who are around you, who are called out with you. That is we, the church, universal through time and space, but also here on this little corner in Rockford, Illinois. More about being called out in the coming weeks. In the name of Jesus, amen.